welcome to the happiest of Mondays because we are back with the new Religious Studies Project season. Before we go any further, I'm Brianne Fallon and with me we have... Dave McConaughey. Brie, it's our 10th season. Can you believe it? I can hardly believe that it is our 10th season. We've done over well over 300 episodes now and we're going to start off this season a little bit differently actually. We've decided to go a bit more thematic with each of the months. So tell us what the theme is for this month. This month's theme is journeys, and we picked that because we were thinking about some of the religious uh, holidays surrounding pilgrimage and some other things, but really what it has come for us uh, is the journey of the podcast and the field of religious studies as we try to deal with some of the really big issues that our uh, our field has as its legacy. So as we ended last season talking about decolonizing religious studies with Mallory Nye, we're going to continue that journey from last time uh, with this first episode of the season, uh, Decolonizing Religious Studies and its layers of complicity with Natalie Avalos. It was a delight to record this. Take it away. My name is David McConaughey, and I'm delighted to be with Dr. Natalie Avalos today. Dr. Avalos is assistant professor in the Ethnic Studies Department at the University of Colorado Boulder, affiliated with the Center for Native American and Indigenous Studies. The Religious Studies Department, and the Tibet Himalaya Initiative. She's the author of numerous articles and book chapters on comparative indigeneities, critical indigenous pedagogy, and specifically decoloniality. Her manuscript on production is entitled The Metaphysics of Decoloniality, Transnational Indigeneities, and Religious Refusal. And it's our great pleasure to have her speaking today to continue the conversation that we ended last season with Mallory Nye about decolonizing religious studies. Dr. Avalos, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. It's so nice to be able to chat with you, especially about this um, pretty timely topic. It is extremely timely. You and I are speaking uh, on July 5th, just after um, President Trump has had a major incident uh, at Mount Rushmore, where there were um, Native American protests to his presence there, and all kinds of opinion pieces. And, and it really is just such a perfect moment for us to assert the importance of decolonizing religious studies. And so I think for listeners that this might be new to them, or they're relearning maybe what they learned in graduate school and trying to figure out its importance. Can you can you help us by explaining what decolonizing means to you and what decolonization means in the work that you do? Yeah. So, you know, this is a really complicated concept because it's floating around in multiple contexts. You know, I think in the middle 20th century, it signaled uh a status project, one of sovereignty, where a former colonized nation becomes independent. But I think since that time, the term has been percolating in you know nationalist movements in the 60s and 70s, and in particular in the U.S., women of color feminist circles, uh, third world women of color literature. And it really can represent how one begins to undo colonization, 
whether that is in their community structures, whether that is in their own views of their own history, reclamation of their own history, reclamation of their own knowledges, those things that have been marginalized, stigmatized, pathologized through colonial orders and through colonial forms of knowledge production. And and really, we could think that (laughs) most knowledge production in the first world is colonial knowledge production. So the way that I started to understand it in my teens, really just kind of reading some of that literature, whether it was like Cherie Moraga, Bell Hooks, Gloria Anseldua, thinking about the ways in which those that have been colonized can come to know themselves again through a new lens, setting aside, interrogating, challenging the colonial conceptions that have been projected onto onto us, onto colonized peoples, right? And really rearticulating our worlds and in ourself in those worlds. And so decolonization has been now, you know, critiqued as like, well, it's not just about decolonizing your mind, but the process of decolonizing your mind is critical <laughs> because people have internalized colonial ideologies. They've internalized ideas about themselves that maybe they're less intelligent less valuable, less capable, all these things. And so decolonization can mean in- interrogating those assumptions. It can mean uh, in the academy, especially rewriting our histories, challenging racist assumptions and ideologies, more specifically in Native American and Indigenous studies, really challenging the primitivist frameworks that had been used for decades to understand indigenous peoples. So those are just some of the ways in which I understand decolonization, but really now we can think of it as a methodology and one that's been operating for decades, actually in religious studies, but in subfields like Native American indigenous studies or you know indigenous religious traditions and the ways in which they overlap with the the greater field of Native American and and Indigenous studies. And so the subfield has some work that represents what it means to decolonize, but it's not understood so explicitly by the mainstream of religious studies, partly because the mainstream of religious studies has not really kept up with some of the changes happening in the social sciences or the humanities. Even when it came to the reflexive and post-structuralist turns, now in anthropology and other fields, we have the ontological turn, which is really understanding the ways in which multiple ontologies coexist and that literature and scholarship can be done in different ways. They, they don't have to be centered through Western logics and epistemologies. And so the work of decolonization has essentially led us to this place. If it weren't for literature that started to come out 20 years ago on, on decolonization, 
in a in an ethnic studies and an indigenous studies context, we wouldn't have the ontological term. Uh, but unfortunately, religious studies just hasn't it hasn't engaged some of these new movements forward in, right. in scholarship. I'm so pleased to, to hear the, the decentering that you're suggesting that our field needs. One of the elements of uh, Chris Cotter's interview with Mallory Nye about decolonization that really struck me is how many of us in religious studies are so comfortable with deconstructing religion, but we're far less comfortable deconstructing the idea that the whole enterprise of religious studies, as it has been given to us from the academy and the way that it operates in the academy, is also a colonial structure. And I, and I think Nye does a really good job tracing the European racist and colonial legacy of that. And one of the places where I'm so pleased that you pick back up is for those who have experienced the personal trauma of colonization and continue to live in colonial structures that are actively oppressing them and asking them to think and bathe and uh, work and live in colonialist uh, structures that, that it gives us a new way to really grasp onto the vitality of the, of the field that has been there for a long time. If you had to identify the, the location of indigenous studies in relation to religious studies as a field and, where do you think that effort of decolonization would would locate them? Does does it stand together with it? Does it confront religious studies? So, in the way that I was trained, you know, so I I was trained by Inez Talamantes, who was, in some ways, a major figure in Native American Indigenous religious traditions, because part of what she was doing the decolonial praxis of challenging the existing order of power within the academy that essentially um, had centered the work of white scholars on indigenous peoples. And, and she was challenging the projections and misreadings and really misunderstandings that were present and continued to perpetuate. And so she started doing this in the 80s. And so I think that there's been a conversation, you know, even thinking about like liberation theology, like mm. womanist theology and, and black theology, like we can see those as kind of proto-expressions of decolonial work. That part of the larger process, even if it hasn't been explicitly framed as decolonial work, is just as you noted, is decentering this kind of assumption of like a white objective neutral voice scholarly voice that can do legitimate work in a lot of the critiques and one of the reasons why i think these fields that do decolonial work have been so marginalized is because they're framed as being interested voices so myself i was trained in like you in religious studies, I wasn't trained in theology in any, in any way, but I've received a lot of critiques that my work is theological. Why? Because I must have a biased position as a Chicana of Apache descent, 
that's interested in trying to understand urban Indian religious life, well, I, I can't possibly be neutral. And if I claim that I'm using indigenous theory, well, that must mean that I am just taking the, you know, the, the narratives and, and the word of my interlocutors at face value and, and not doing any real critical theoretical engagement. Part of what's missing there is that there is a complete misunderstanding or failure to understand that indigenous theorists and scholars actually do exist <laughs> and that right. you can draw from their work and use their work in a religious studies context to understand indigenous religious traditions and indigenous religious life. I wonder if I, if I could, do you think that this is comparable? And I know we don't often think of it this way, but do you think that's comparable to if you're going to talk about European Christians and you know, Western Christians, then of course you're going to use Weber, and of course you're going to use Durkheim, and of course you're going to use Geertz, right? That is the culturally located expressions that that speak to those traditions and about those traditions. But if you're going to speak about indigenous traditions, well, what is Weber to them, right? What is Durkheim to them? Is, is, that, is that what you're getting at? That there's a way in which these are understood to be really the only means from which you can cultivate and understand indigenous peoples. And if that's true, and if that's right, or even, you know, like Tyler's work, or, you know, this kind of anthropological, really primitivist right. <laughs> anthropological frameworks that, that you're expected to apply. And you just can't because you realize it's violent to do. You know, supremely and, racist. Well, and it just deeply disfigures. You don't end up learning anything about the indigenous communities. You just end up learning about what you're projecting onto them. Mm. And so you're not really cultivating anything that's helpful to the communities or to the larger world of scholarship. It just becomes a kind of like navel gazing. Again, part of the work that decolonization can do in the greater field is to interrogate that assumed neutral position that we, and this is why it's important for us to understand the reflexive turn, right? That we are all interested. We are all speaking from an interested position and that our positionalities frame what conversations we have and, and how we understand them and what we produce, what kind of knowledge we're producing. But also in an indigenous studies context, the call has been, let's no longer do violence to indigenous peoples and communities, especially in scholarship, because we understand that there's a direct relationship between knowledge production, because if we think of anthropology as really an extension of um, state policies that want to manage um, indigenous populations in order to continue to have political control over them and exploit their resources and bodies, then we really have to think about the ways in which, you know, we have to be careful to just think about how power is operating in knowledge production. And that's what a decolonial approach asks us to do, is to 
like think deeply about that. How is it, how is it that knowledges are basically perceived to have a hierarchy, that there are some knowledges that are more important and legitimate and rational and valuable than others? All those deeply racialized, because if we think of, of racism as racism is just a means to an end. If racism just operates to pathologize and silence those that are, you know, then become exploitable. Uh, in the words of, of another decolonial scholar, Nelson Maldonado Torres, he would say, well, it, it enables, it compels slaveability, right? Those that, that can be ultimately exploited. Um, and it naturalizes their slaveability and exploitability. And unfortunately, that's where we're at. We're in a place, not only socially, but in academia, where those hierarchies are so naturalized that what decolonial work does is it asks us to interrogate and deconstruct and challenge these naturalized assumptions so that we may do work that's actually just. I think you're offering a lot here to those that would want to pursue this work. You you present it in structural terms and you present it in personal terms, but but I'm hearing also that there's a lot of psychological work that needs to happen for each person as they're in, involved in this. Can can you speak a little bit more about maybe and I know that that this comes from Fritz Fanon and and the kind of two ways of, of thinking about decolonization's uh, work, but can you make the distinction a little bit clearer for listeners about the structural elements versus the psychological elements? And, and specifically because if we change the structural elements and we don't change the psychological ones, we're still not working towards justice, right? Yeah. Because they're being retained. And so if we're engaged in both halves of that process, as you say that we should be, why do we want to do that work? And and if we don't feel like we are positioned in a colonialist structure, why is that work still essential to us? Yeah, yeah. Well, what I appreciate so much about Fanon's work, and you know, just to be clear, he was understood as an anti-colonial scholar, and it, that was like mm. a kind of mid twentieth century expression of of scholarship that was really seeking to totally deconstruct and not that decolonization is not invested in the same aims. I think that, that there are sh shared aims, but decolonial scholarship, at least from the more Latin American strain of Mignolo, Quijano, they're pulling from both, you know, critical theory, but also folks like Fanon and some of those middle 20th century thinkers. What I really appreciate about his work is that you know, he was a psychoanalyst. He was really trying to understand, well, how is it that colonization pathologizes the colonized? And how is it that the colonized internalize these ideas? We think in terms of Foucault's biopower, right. the, the ways in which we internalize the relations of power that essentially construct modernity. Uh, so Mignola would say, well, modernity is is coloniality, right? That, that that all these relations of power are based on on colonial logics, and so for 
Fanon, it was really important for him because it's one thing to say, okay, well, now we have autonomy. Structurally, we're, we're autonomous, but are we still replicating the same systems of power? Are we still replicating the same hierarchies of power where we've so deeply internalized whiteness as the only option in how to function that we're still operating in a way that's aspirationally white, aspirationally European, as opposed to reevaluating, well, what might it mean? And I think this is the major conversation that's come out of ethnic studies and Native American and indigenous studies. What does it mean for us to re-envision our social world using our own logics, our own philosophical logics, reclaiming them, and also recognizing the ones that still exist, that are still in operation. So that might mean uh, looking at the ways in which we care for the land and plant and don't over harvest or don't damage the land and, and plant crops that are complementary to one another in a kind of very structural way. But also, what is your relationship to power, right? Like, how is it that we've internalized an idea that top-down power is the only possible way that a society can function, right? And, you know, luckily, we get critiques of this, you know, coming out of, like, women and gender studies and feminist studies uh, about, well, what are some of the differences between hierarchical power and lateral power? But I think that that's what Fanon was really helping us um, get to is the ways in which we have so deeply internalized these hierarchical, racist, white supremacist structures that were still often attenuated to them. And that, you know, in a religious studies context, that means whose work is going to be perceived as legitimate and relevant and important and even viable then who is getting a job? To me, the, the real boon of folks like Mallory and I and others wanting to take up this mantle and do this critique, you know, because he notes that there are people in religious studies that have started to do, right? They've kind of done the, the, the proto-version of this work, like Masasawa, helping us understand, well, these categories that we live with that have become naturalized, they're cultivated through these deeply colonialist <laughs> motivations. Right. So why don't we deconstruct them and then reevaluate what position are we speaking from and what do we want to do and what, what kinds of hierarchies are we still implicated in and how do we extricate ourselves? Because I think part of the, the process, and I know this sounds very lofty, but part of the process and the end goal that I think even Fanon was was leading us to is re-envisioning a world of uh, lateral power and an interdependent power, uh, moving away from a reality that has to be, you know, like this zero sum game. So I think it really, in some ways, is a deeply personal, psychological, emotional one could say even spiritual project. Like this is really a project of personal liberation. How do we get free of, of structures that are binding all of us in ways that we're not 
really happy with, right? Because if we think that some of these hierarchical structures that currently benefit white male scholars, you know, that they're perceived in the field as the most legitimate, as having the most accurate voices, even being the most valuable voices, what a burden on them, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, it, it makes me think of the ways in which we, the ways in which, say, patriarchy hurts men, right? We often think of the ways in which patriarchy just hurts, like, the non-binary in, in, in women, but that's not the case, right? So we can think that coloniality actually hurts all of us because it puts all of us, it creates a framework where we're all frozen in our racialized, gendered, sexed, classed positions. And it prevents us from being able to, to move around and redefine our relationships to one another and what's redefined what's valuable in the field and what's important. And, and even, you know, I think that there have been several scholars that have bemoaned the ways in which religious studies has become somewhat marginalized or less relevant, you know, that religious studies students have now migrated to maybe American studies or other places. Well, how do you rebrand yourself, I guess, or make yourself relevant again? Well, talk about these, the things that matter. Uh, talk about these power dynamics in ways that are legible and and relevant because young people, you know, they're smart. They know that these conversations can exist, but we're just not having them. <laughs> yeah. It's such, such a frustrating moment where the, the promise of all of this seems so latent for us, but there are moments when we're not actualizing it to our greatest advantage. Yeah. I'm looking at your teaching document in the background because I love the way that you that you put some of the things that you were you were just mentioning. We hear the word decolonization often in resistance circles, but what does it mean? Some of you may dismiss it as irrelevant by thinking, quote, I'm not a person of color, I haven't been affected or constrained by colonialism. Bad news, buddy, we are all affected and constrained by colonialism. And I so I think you're 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 very eloquent on on this point about not simply the people for whom the oppression is direct and immediate and visible, but that the structures affect us all and that we should all want to not just recognize them, but to, but to work to, to limit their effects. When I was reading your work in preparing to speak, one of the things that really stood out for me about La Placita was the idea of regeneration. Do you think you could share a bit about regeneration as a theoretical concept that helps people experience the psychological benefits of decolonization? The reason why I really like this concept, I'm drawing from a Mohawk scholar, Taki Alfred, and he's speaking in the context of different First Nations communities that he's worked with. And what he was trying to understand, he's a political scientist, and he's really trying to understand, well, how does indigenous governance work? How can it actually be functional? Because indigenous governance that has been modeled on like a nation state hierarchical template was never really functional. And they were essentially put in place to carry out 
the wishes of settler colonial, you know, like resource extraction, things like that. So the settler colonial goals. And so traditional models of governance had been shifted to the side. And generally, traditional models of governance were religious leaders. So he was trying to understand, well, how is it that we can have functional governance? And he was saying, well, it really comes down to regeneration. It comes down to regenerating as peoples. And what he means by that is actually reclaiming languages, reclaiming your metaphysical world, reclaiming your sense of self as coextensive with others. And what I liked about it in terms of La Placita is that, you know, I saw that that's what was happening there. And in a, my interest in just trying to understand urban Indian life in general is that we typically think, I think, you know, we have these assumptions that, well, urban Indians are just quote unquote less authentic. They're just not really going to, they're going to have fractured religious lives. And to some degree, the religious lives are fractured, but that's assuming that there was some sort of coherent <laughs> religious life pre-contact. And that's not necessarily the case. You know, like indigenous religious life is really complex and it it doesn't operate in the ways that we assume religious life should in this kind of like orderly institutional way. And really no religious tradition does, right? I was really interested in how it how it was that people were healing, really like healing from historical trauma, because that's such a deep trauma. You know, historical trauma is, is not just PTSD. It's really like a whole obliteration at the level of being. I was raised in a context where I saw so many people in my family, especially on my father's side, he's Chicano and Apache, and just seeing the ways in which what I now understand to be trauma was playing out. And so with La Placita, this is a community that's led by uh, also a Chicano Apache man, Albino Garcia, and he was brought into the Sundance tradition, essentially adopted into that tradition. And he brought the Sundance and sweat lodge ceremonies into this space. And he was an ex-con himself, and he built up this community space to serve and support those that had been caught up in the criminal justice system, which, you know, whether it was youth or adults, men, women, so former gang members, those that had been incarcerated for whatever reason. And what happens is that you become decontextualized from life and then you're thrown back in, you know, you come out of that space and you're thrown back into the world. And it's like, well, how do you reintegrate? And really what he found in, in the, the discussion there is that you're not just disoriented by the criminal justice system. You've been disoriented by colonialism for centuries, <laughs> as have your ancestors. And so part of the goal is really reorienting yourself to an indigenous world, but also to an indigenous community, literally just reconceptualizing yourself as a part of something larger. And I think part of what had been so psychologically harmful to people living an urban Indian life is that you really have no place. You're, you're 
you're living in a space where these are, you're living on your traditional lands, but you're essentially a refugee in your own traditional lands, and you have no power and you are dispossessed at every opportunity. And so how do you survive, right? How do you survive in a white supremacist environment? How do you survive mentally, emotionally, psychologically? And so regeneration helps us understand, well, what does survival look like? And survival looks like this deep reconnection, regeneration of community, regeneration of language logics, ceremonial logics, kinship, the recreation of family, rekindling your sense of, you know, I talked to so many young men that were like, you know, my heart was just frozen. And I was in deep grief, you know, reconnecting with your emotional life and just the layers, generational grief around dispossession and hatred, feeling as if you're hated by the larger community. Then redefining yourself as someone that is a steward of the community, that wants to love and nurture the community, and that that's actually your true identity and maybe even your true purpose. So that is profoundly healing for people. And I think ultimately a very good example of what decolonization does for people on the ground, what it really looks like is that very deep transformation. What I love about your work is that it's unequivocal that the work of decolonization is going to be different for each one of us, that the individuals that you worked with and that you saw working on the issues of, of decolonizing their community in Albuquerque, that for each one of us, Mallory and I working in Europe, me working in Massachusetts, you in Colorado, that in each of our circumstances, that that's going to be a different kind of work. Yeah. As a white person, I receive privilege that I may not have earned. And the question is, what can I do with that privilege that I might not otherwise to advance these causes? Mm -hmm. If you and I are in the classroom and teaching on similar subjects about religious studies, what are the strategies? Do, do you and I get to use the same strategies? Do we have to use different strategies? If we turn here in the last uh, few minutes of our, of our time together, what can we recommend to those that are on board with the necessity uh, and the long overdueness of decolonizing religious studies? W what are the first steps that we might take that put us on the longer lifelong process of doing this work for our students and, and for our field? This is a great question. And, and I think this is one that people get, get stuck because it's like, I understand this in theory, but then how, what does it look like? <laughs> what does it look <laughs> yeah, like right. in practice? And, you know, I don't think there is any one perfect way. And what I what excites me so much about the fact that there are scholars, in particular white scholars, that want to talk about this, it's like, well, it puts it on the map as something relevant <laughs> and important to do in the classroom, but also outside. So as scholars, I think we're, we're trained to be neutral. And I think it is important to be somewhat neutral in the classroom, but 
we're totally interpellated by power, right? And so we have to name and visibilize that power. And so that's what it, in my mind, that's what it means to be colonized a classroom, especially the religious studies classroom. Think about the canon and not throw the canon away, but instead, how might I reframe the canon so that I can understand thinkers like Frazier, Tyler, Durkheim as cultivating a deeply primitivist discourse and how that shapes our collective reality even now, right? And so in some ways, it's, it's like an inversion, bringing in material like Masazawa's work, uh, Linda Tuway Smith's work on decolonizing methodologies, really just helps you frame. So the conversation that you're starting with is interrogating power and these hierarchies that are created by the canon, and then unpacking that throughout. And then packing your own positionality. So how might my positionality and sense of legitimacy and power in the classroom differ from, from yours, right? And be read differently. Well, ultimately, I think it's important for students to, to signal that for students, just tell them outright. Like, so I have this kind of privilege. You may perceive me as being more authoritative and uh, more intelligent and more legitimate in my voice because of these structures embedded in the canon itself. And adding assignments that help deconstruct that I have one on um, called Decolonial Autobiography, where I ask students to just think about, well, you know, what are the layers, what are the colonial <laughs> layers of the places that they grew up? Who were the first peoples there? When did uh, settlers first come? Are the first people still there? What happened to them? What kind of relationship is, is there in that place with those first peoples? What is your relationship to power there? What is your complicity there? And that really carries out where, you know, beyond the classroom, you're thinking about that. So here, decolonization, to speak to my earlier definition, is really also thinking about indigenous sovereignty. When you're in a place like the U.S., where indigenous nations still exist, yet they're totally erased and marginalized and silenced, especially within the classroom, how might we recenter them so that you think about your relationship with them, but also think about, well, what are the ways in which I can aid and support indigenous sovereignty and be interested, be genuinely interested in indigenous sovereignty? that necessitates a deep interrogation around your own access to power, what it means to monopolize power in the U.S. and in other settler colonial nations. And what does it mean to share power? Like just deeply reconceptualizing that. And talk about that. Have a conversation with them. And just that is the work. To me, that is decolonial work. It is really visibilizing what has been naturalized, these relations of power that have been so naturalized that we take for granted, interrogating them, challenging them, deconstructing them, reevaluating them, putting them up for discussion. You know, that's a major part of the work and, and helping students be reflexive about it, integrating assignments. I ask students to do 
like a decolonial autobiography oftentimes is, you know, sometimes an extra credit assignment, but asking them to think about their relationship to land and place, because there's always some sort of indigenous studies element in my class, even, you know, if it's a course on religion and healing or lived religions, I think it should always be there because it really helps students understand and denaturalize their relationship, the assumption that land, the lands that they are on, particularly in the West, right, in the Americas, mm-hmm. that these are indigenous lands and that those indigenous peoples are still there and they're still fighting for sovereignty. And that the more that we continue to ignore them, right, um, it's just making their fight more difficult. And so how might we rethink our relationship to lands and peoples and first peoples and our layers of complicity in their dispossession? Honestly, what I find with students, they're pretty excited to do that because they're so deeply uncomfortable with the complicity, but even more uncomfortable and frustrated and angry by what feels like an inability to do anything, to change structures. Mm. And I think part of the goal is helping students understand just how much power they have. They have an incredible amount of power and that we all do, and that this is a collective effort. And so that if we're all contributing to this collective effort, we can have massive change, you know, and we're seeing that now, right. In these, these movements where all of a sudden, like, you know, statues coming down, Denver had statues of Columbus coming down. Denver was one of the places that the American Indian movement had been working even with like Italian American communities to change Columbus day to indigenous people's days for decades, you know, a religious studies scholar, Tink Tinker, he'd been working on this, you know, he's an Osage scholar, a leader in the, the urban Indian community there. And so decades of work is all of a sudden viable and possible in the blink of an eye. And I think that that's what decolonization work can do in the classroom. It just makes it viable and possible. So in the classroom, let's, let's tear down all those, those monuments. There you go. And that's really what it is meant to do and can do. Yeah. Well, I'm so thankful for your time today and for your expertise on this. We are, are delighted to be able to share some of these recommendations and your perspective on it. And we just want to thank you for your time today. Thank you so much, David. I just appreciate that the podcast wants to have this conversation. And I hope that it continues to grow and build. So thank you. I appreciate it. On a meta level, it was really amazing to continue the journey that we really started at the end of last season and have an additional voice in this discussion on decolonizing religion. Now, we're going to continue this theme of journeys through the month, but before we tell you what's coming up next week in terms of our theme of journeys, we have a few very exciting things to tell you. Now, the next thing that we want to tell you, I'm going to give to Dave because it was really his baby, and that is the new website. Yeah, visit our new website. It, we're still at um, 
religiousstudiesproject.com. But it had been a couple of years since the site had gotten a makeover, and we were getting all these crashes in the back end, and no one wants the website down. So I took a big hammer to uh, to the project, and I redid the back end, and it's all bright and new and shiny. Uh, suggestions are welcome. This is an open process. We're going to keep iterating on what it looks like and trying to make sure that all of the resources that we have over 350 podcast episodes, over 330 responses, uh, 500 plus author pages, and a lot of other stuff that we've done over the last 10 years. We want to make sure that all that is accessible and easy to get uh, for all the teachers and the students that may be using our materials. And we're really committed to um, accessibility. So we're going back and trying to transcribe as many things as we can and um, really gussy everything up and polish it uh, it off for everyone to to enjoy. And um, part of that process for us is also really increasing um, our attention to our media presence. Um, Bree uh, and um, fellow Ray Radford uh, in Australia have been managing the Twitter and the Facebook, and they've been doing such a great job um, over the last year, really trying to build um, a community of social media presence. And we're going to continue that work. We have a newsletter that comes out with the opportunities that um, uh, are generated each month that are sent to us that we share with everyone. And we're really looking forward uh, to being able to continue developing the community that sees the Religious Studies Project as a resource and working on sharing all of that with you wonderful listeners. So if you'd like to support that work, we would really appreciate your visit to Patreon uh, at patreon.com slash project RS. Uh, even a small donation, um, a cup of coffee a month for us can make a big difference. We have hosting costs. We have website costs. We love to pay our interviewers and uh, the transcriptions that uh, that are done are not cheap to do either. All of this takes money and we would appreciate your help in trying to support this resource that we uh, have pledged to keep open access and free for everybody who's working in higher ed to, to continue using. So in addition to going and checking out Patreon, also follow us on our Facebook and our Twitter, the Religious Studies Project on Facebook and Project RS on Twitter. We love hearing from you. We love hearing what you think of the episodes, anything you see interesting out in the field. So make sure you're in a dialogue with us on our socials between all the different episodes. Now, we promised we would tell you what is going to be on next week. And this was one of mine. But Dave, why don't you announce it? Uh, sure. You know, we are thrilled when people have success uh, who are members of the project. And a founding member of the project, Christopher Cotter, has a brand new fancy shiny book that he has been working so hard on. It's so amazing. We're thrilled. And he got the chance to sit down with Bree. So next time, we're going to be talking about developing a critical study of non-religion with Christopher Cotter by Bree Ann Fallon. I'm super excited. Are you excited, Bree? Of course, I'm excited. It's always lovely to talk to Chris. And the episode is wonderful because not only does it talk about what's in the book, but the journey of creating the book as well. So it's touching on those themes on a lot of different levels. But until then, all that's left to say is thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC0. 
47750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Marek Sullivan and Rebecca Barrett-Fox and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop and video editing by Jonathan Tuckett. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals. <laughs>